Hey everyone, uh, this week we had a few technical difficulties, mainly as you'll see throughout the interview, my camera's extremely pixelated, but who knows, you might prefer that so you don't have to see my ugly mug throughout the entire video. It could be an upside, but I really appreciate Matt Palumbo coming on. We had a great interview. He spoke about his new book and the Supreme Court vacancy left by Ruth Bader Ginsburg and whether that should be filled during a presidential election year. I appreciate you guys sticking with us as we deal with these sort of technical issues, but I'm sure we'll have everything sorted in the weeks to come. Hello, and welcome back to Talking Politics. I'm Matthew Granger, the host. Today we have a very interesting guest. He is a New York Times bestselling author and the author of the new book, Dumb and Dumber, How Cuomo and de Blasio Ruin New York. Thank you for joining me, Matt. Yes, yeah, good to be on. Thanks for inviting me. Well, um, just to start, uh, your title gives a lot away about your book, but how did you get the inspiration for it? Um, I mean, there's really no uh, great story. It's more just my publisher thought it would be a great idea for a book and uh, actually pitched it to me. Um, no, it's not, it wasn't completely out of a vacuum. Um, so I write like two to three articles a day um, for Dan Bongino's website. And most of it's just covering, you know, just national news and just whatever the top two or three stories of the day are, in my opinion. Um, and there's just a lot of recurring stories coming out of New York. So like the whole nursing home coronavirus disaster, you know, you do a story on it and then, oh my God, it's worse than we thought. And then here's the 10 different ways to covered it up. Here's all their denials of their nonsense. Um, or it might be, you know, crimes on the rise in New York City, and then, oh, wait, they just disbanded their plane clothes unit, hey, they just defunded the police, and all these stories are just kind of built on each other. Um, and I'm assuming my publisher noticed I was writing about those a lot, but he, he was telling me, you know, I've lived in New York my whole life, and for the first time in my life, I'm thinking about leaving, and, you know, I've read your writing on it, and I think you would be perfect to do a book on that. Um, and, you know, the great thing about writing a book about the Blasio and Cuomo screwing everything up is how easy it is to find information. Um, I mean, I think my first book took me two years to write. It took me two and a half months. Um, but I could probably do another 10 volumes if need be. <laughs> and and for, for those of us who don't knew, know New York that well, what are, what are Blasio's and um, de Blasio's and Cuomo's biggest failings that really sort of uh, spoke to you or gave you the most inspiration for this book? Uh, polemic that you're writing? Well, I think the coronavirus is number one. Um, it, it, there's no greater example of the media being disconnected from reality than that. Um, you know, for instance, people are talking about Sweden uh, and their response to coronavirus, and they didn't do nothing like a lot of people portray it, but they, they didn't, didn't do you know, any national lockdowns, and a lot of restrictions were kind of uh, uh, voluntary. Um, and they've had, I think it's like 500 deaths per million people from coronavirus, and you know, it was always reported on in a sky is falling kind of way. And, you know, I'm not actually commenting on whether or not the policy was good, but it, because at the same time as that was happening, New York's coronavirus deaths per million was 1,500 per, mi or 1500 per million. And in New York City, it's close to 2,000 per million. So it's three to four times as much in New York. And yet in Sweden, they reported as if the sky is falling. In New York, it's, it's home was doing everything right. Um, or, or like, you know, we all know how the curve works, where if you do a horrible job in fighting the pandemic, the curve is going to look like that. And mm -hmm. you will get to the point where you have no deaths a lot quicker, but it's, you're going to still have more deaths overall than if it was like that. So they're now going, oh, well, they have no deaths now, so I guess it's all right. And it's like, well, no, compare the curves between New York and all these other places, and New York, someone has screwed everything up. Um, Furthermore, you know, I make the point in the book that, you know, Trump has gotten a lot of heat for calling it the China virus. 
Um, and at the global level, it is a China virus, but in America, it's the New York virus because if you if you track the spread, and I actually source a New York Times so no one could you know claim I was partisan on this, something like eighty percent of the spread in the rest of the country can be or other major cities can be linked to New York. Um, so if it didn't explode there, it wouldn't have exploded uh, everywhere else. You know what we're seeing now in America. I don't think we ever had a second wave, even though we had an uptick in cases. I think we just saw a, a delayed first wave and everything had to leave New York and then spread elsewhere. And, you know, hey, if New York did, uh, you know, they, they provide estimates in the book from the, the former CDC head estimating that New York's problem could have been 80% lower than it was if they actually took it seriously. Um, Trump kind of gets accused of, of do, uh, having a do-nothing approach, but he banned travel from China like a month and a half before New York even really acknowledged it was a threat. Um, so just the whole media narrative motivated me to show, well, actually, here's what really happened. Here's a comedy of errors, and here's the consequence. And they really faced no political consequences at all. Um, mm. and in fact, I, sorry, sorry to cut you off. I think Cuomo's no, a no, no. higher than it's ever been. So it's just, you know, get another example of the media narrative winning, unfortunately. Mm. And and how how would you have preferred they, they went about their handling of the pandemic? Because I, I read your excerpt, which is available at uh, thepostmillennial.com, which is a shameless plug. And, and you provided how Bloomberg and Rudy Giuliani spoke about crime rates, or at least Rudy Giuliani did, and said how they could have been doing a much better job. What would you have liked to see from uh, de Blasio? Uh, do you mean for, like, for crime or for the coronavirus? Coronavirus. I, I, I was just providing an alternative oh, uh, of other mayors that might have done a better job. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I think it would be any other mayor. Um, I mean, the number one thing, and this is more of a Cuomo policy, was nursing homes. Um, you know, close mm -hmm. to half of all the deaths nationwide are in nursing homes. Um, their quote-unquote logic was, well, we need to free up hospitals, so we'll put these patients in nursing homes. And strangely, only blue state governors seem to think that was a great idea. Um, and we know that we know the response. Um, in fact, in New York, there was one single county, uh, Republican County, where they said, this is stupid, we're just going to disobey this, regardless of the consequences from the government. Uh, and guess what, their nursing homes had zero uh, coronavirus deaths. So it just seems to show that well, they, that was a the worst policy. Um, and B, I mean, there was just such a do nothing approach. And like, I'm not making an argument for lockdowns. Um, although that is you know, something to discuss. It's just, de Blasio was literally just act like nothing's going wrong. He was he was tweeting out movie recommendations so people go to the movies and take their mind off this. Um, he, he claimed that the, that it can't spread through food so you can go to restaurants and, and, and whatever. Um, and there's just countless examples. I think the biggest one was uh, de Blasio, um, and actually Pelosi did this as well, and a number of members of uh, de Blasio's cabinet were tweeting out, out like, uh, like, oh, you know, the virus could be bad, but it's not as bad as racism against Asian people. So go to Chinatown and go spend money and go congregate and go celebrate Chinese New Year. Um, and, and, you know, of course, now we know, well, obviously, that's not going to be good when there's a uh, virus out there. Um, and, you know, it took them, I think, uh, you know, everyone, accused, as I said earlier, everyone accuses Trump of acting like it was, it was not a big deal. But they were about a month and a half behind where Trump was and taking this thing seriously. So and the consequences you can see in the death rate. Mm. You, well, you brought, brought up um, racial tensions in the United States, and I think the, the defining uh, moments for the mayor of New York has been both the COVID pandemic and his response to the Black Lives Matter movement. How, how do you think he, he acted, uh, whether accordingly or not, to the Black Lives Matter protests or riots or whatever you want to call it? 
Uh, well, it was just yet another example of how arbitrary a lot of the restrictions we're supposed to obey are. Um, you know, he, he was like a one week tweeting to like a Jewish community holding a funeral who, who were, I think, to some extent social distancing, but they were at least wearing masks and tweeting that he was going to crack down on them. But then a week later, there's a Black Lives Matter rally and it's, well, I mean, what can we do? It's a historic moment. And, you know, they, they justify it by saying, you know, well, racism is killing people too. And it's like, well, compare the numbers. We lost, I think, 10 or 11 unarmed black men to police last year. We've lost one in a thousand black people nationwide to coronavirus. So I, I think one of these problems is, is a bigger risk than the other. Um, and the whole thing, I mean, the whole narrative is nonsense. I mean, we want to talk about hate crimes increasing. White people are 60% of America. They only commit 25% of all the hate crimes. Um, so phrasing this in a black, in literally black and white terms just doesn't make any sense. Um, you know, and, and the prior stat where, you know, I think police shootings of unarmed black men are down to like 80 or so percent in just the past five years. And uh, under any other circumstance, you would look at that as a massive success. I mean, obviously you want it to be zero, um, assuming, you know, depending on what the circumstances are, if, obviously if they're attacking police, it's different. Um, but it's just, it's one of those cases where the left wants the narrative to drag on forever. So as so long as there's one person killed by police, they're going to present it as a systemic problem, even, even if it's obviously not. Mm. And, well, if, if we can, that's very interesting, but um, if, if we could sort of change topics slightly, I know something that's on everyone's mind is the recent death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And of course, that opens up a Supreme Court seat. Uh, what do you think we're going to start seeing in the media, or at least from House leaders and party officials in the sort of media circus that will ensue in the coming weeks? Uh, well, I think uh, Amy Coney Barrett's yearbook is going to get scrutinized very heavily in the next few weeks. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't know exactly what's going to happen. I just know it's going to be horrible and reading Twitter is going to make my head explode for the next 40-something days. Um, it's just, it's one of those cases where both sides tries to pretend they're the principled ones. Like, obviously, on the left, they're acting like, well, hey, when it was our nominee, you guys wouldn't nominate him. And I mean, the reason they didn't bring a vote on Merrick Garland was because Republicans control the Senate. Um, when, you know, when, when the party in power does control the Senate and there's a vacancy in an election year, I think almost every single time it has been filled. Um, so history actually is on the GOP side in that regard. Um, and more than half of all our justices have been confirmed in other, under 45 days. Um, so it, it seems like it's probably going to happen. Um, there's only two defectors so far. Um, was that Collins and Murkowski, uh, and their opposition was to even nominating someone, period. So when they're put in the position of, well, you have to vote, so what are you going to do? I don't think it would be that much of a structure. They do vote for whoever Trump picks. Um, and, you know, we picked up, well, Romney's on a guarantee, but it seems like he's down with it now. Um, so the only other potential holdout is Chuck Grassley, um, but that was years ago where he, he said he publicly opposed um, nominating someone in an election year, and it could have just been, he could have been thinking of Democrats uh, at the time. So I do think we're probably going to see someone push through. Um, as for who it is, it seems like, just from what I'm reading, it's Amy Coney Barrett's the front runner. Um, but, you know, who knows completely. Mm. And, and Mitch McConnell's still the, the House leader or the leader of the Senate uh, majority. And it, do you think it, it reveals a certain level of hypocrisy? Because he was saying, previously that there should be no presidential nominations in an election year. And now there seems to be the sort of caveat that there shouldn't be presidential elections in, uh, sorry, a, sorry, a uh, Supreme Court nomination in an uh, election year when there's a, um, sorry, a difference in parties between the president and the Senate. Do you think that's, that's doing some sort of uh, verbal 
some verbal acrobatics to say the least. Uh, that's actually how I was going to put it. I mean, yes, that yeah. is how he justifies the differences. Well, and, and as I said, history actually is on his side that when you do control the Senate, you do have get, usually get a nominee through, um, even mm. if it's an election year. So, and I mean, let's be honest, if the situations were reversed, Democrats would be nominating someone. And we know that's true because they nominated someone even when they didn't have the majority. Um, it, it's just, it, it's so stupid that both sides pretend that they're principled when it benefits them, but Mm-hmm. is not when it also benefits them. I, I, I don't know. I mean, we, we, it's just politics. I don't really know if there's much to say about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, it certainly uh, is concerning to see both sides take sort of the immediate opposite uh, reaction now that they're on uh, the losing side me, or the winning side. It, it reminds me, that actually is happening too, like in our population. I was obviously different from the book, but I saw a poll that like, if you like pull Medicare for all among Democrats, obviously supports like 80 or 90 percent. But when they you tell them Trump wants to propose Medicare for all, it's like 30 or 40 percent support. <laughs> it's like oh, that's, that's where we're terrible. at now, somehow. So, yeah, oh, yeah. Well. How do you think? How do you think this uh, kerfuffle, so to speak, will affect Trump in his re-election campaign coming up? That's actually what I struggle with, um, because it does seem like, I mean, that's just going off Twitter, which is the 10% craziest part of the left. It does seem like this is going to mobilize them. Um, but then I think all these PC posting were always going to vote this way anyway, and we're definitely getting out. Um, so I don't know how that translates. Um, now, you know, I know Roe v. Wade, and I think that's kind of going to be the left's main attack, is, is claiming that Roe v. Wade's going to go to the, to the wayside with the GOP justice. Um, and it seems like from the polling I've seen, I think it's like 60% oppose abolishing Roe v. Wade, which is actually higher than the percentage that generally um, are fine with abortion in most circumstances. Um, so that could be an issue they play off of. Um, it just depends. Like, I don't know how much people weight that issue. You know, it could be, obviously you could have an issue that most people support or, or oppose, but it depends on the degree at which it motivates them to get out and vote. Um, and obviously, you could go the other way too. I mean, this you know, so-called silent majority—you know—more of them to be mobilized as a result. Um, but you know, we'll see. E- either way, if you know Trump loses, I think it'll definitely uh, incentivize them to rush the third faster than though. Do you think we're going to see a repeat of the extremely divisive nomination of Brett Kavanaugh? So I think Trump and Republicans were worried about that, and that's why they picked a woman this time. Um, mm-hmm. You're at least not going to get any sexual assault uh, allegations. Um, and, and right now, they're already they're already grasping for straws with Amy Coney Barrett. Like there was an article in Newsweek where they were claiming that um, though the Handmaid's Tale was based off of her or like, the group she was in, and it turns out they got the wrong group. So they had to use the <laughs> correction at the end of their article, being like, "Okay, J.K., we got everything wrong," which was really funny. But uh, you know, I guess we'll see what they bring up next. Um, it's funny that you know if you attack Biden for not being a real Catholic, you're a bigot, but also if you support Amy Coney Barrett, you're a bigot because she's Catholic. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think this just shows the the storm of hypocrisy that's that's been looming for a while and has certainly hit us more now than ever. Uh, well, uh, thank you for coming on. I really enjoyed uh, having you on. You're a very intelligent person, and I'm Thanks, sure you have much more to say about uh, Cuomo and De Blasio and how they've absolutely destroyed New York. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I think you'll like the book and uh, your audience as well. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Really appreciate it.